The Energy Department has a lot to do under the new national cyber strategy, focused heavily on critical infrastructure. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke to two people about this. One was Energy Chief Information Officer Ann Duncan, who discussed the department's own cyber strategy. But first, we'll hear from the director of DOE's Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response Office, Piyush Kumar. I would actually say that the energy sector as a whole has been a little bit more forward-leaning than some of the other critical infrastructure sectors when it comes to security. You know, when you think of even our partnerships with the electricity sector through organizations such as the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council that is comprised of CEOs that come and meet with us at a very senior level on the government side, both with us at uh, the Department of Energy, but also our interagency partners. The sector has taken cybersecurity uh, very seriously, and and we've been doing a lot of work in that. With that said, the national cyber strategy is really a strategy for the nation. It is what everybody needs to be doing across all of the sectors, but it also helps message what more we need to be doing. So, for example, in the strategy, it talks about securing our clean energy future, and that is an area that we are really focused on here at Caesar. And we're partnering with other offices at DOE, for example, our Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office. We started working with them to say, how do we ensure that as you're developing these next generation wind, solar, EV related efforts, how do we ensure that cybersecurity is built in? And so this really helps to not only signal to the traditional cyber community, but my hope it helps signal to other sectors and other communities that uh, certainly, you know, recognize that cyber is important. We see it in the news all the time, but really a, a targeted focus to say we have to ensure cyber is not just important, it is necessary. Got it. Yeah. And, you know, clean energy technologies were one of those, I think, three buckets that the national cyber strategy calls out as kind of future uh, really important uh, technologies to secure. You know, uh, you mentioned the partnering across DOE and, and more broadly with industry. Where, where do you think that needs to go, though? Is that more in the R&D lane right now in terms of cybersecurity and clean energy? Is it actually, you know, putting on, you know, monitoring technologies onto existing infrastructure? Is it a mix? Uh, where is that at and where does it need to go? So when it comes to clean energy, DOE is going to be investing approximately $62 billion in the energy sector over the next five to 10 years as a result of the president's bipartisan infrastructure law. And so how we're thinking about that is a lot of that funding is really focused on building a more secure, clean and resilient energy sector. And so as we're making those investments in the energy sector, and it's going to just accelerate it. So we've already seen those investments being made, right? We're seeing solar panels on residential rooftops. We're already seeing EVs being connected. But the funding we're going to be deploying across the department, that $62 billion is going to just accelerate it. Not to mention all the private investments we're going to see as a result of this focus on clean energy. So, so we have a strategic opportunity now to say, how do we include cybersecurity requirements in that going forward? Um, we have formed a CSER-led effort with all of the other offices executing funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law to ensure that cybersecurity considerations will be made. 
And so plans from the infrastructure law, whether it's an initiative led by our renewable energy office, whether it's an initiative led by our nuclear energy office, if it has a digital connectivity to it, we and CSER are going to be working with those offices in partnership with the national laboratories to ensure that there are cyber requirements also built in. Got it. And then uh, really quickly, I know this is something that you know GIO has called out in the past. And obviously, this national cyber strategy looks heavily at critical infrastructure. Does DOE and CSER have any plans to further assess cyber risks to the electric grid and potentially update its sector-specific plans? We actually have a review going on right now. It is being led by our National Renewable Energy Laboratory, where we've pulled together over 100 subject matter experts to really focus in on the cyber risk of the distribution system and the DER community. And really the idea behind that is, you know, the grid is changing. We're going from large centralized generation to more distributed decentralized generation when we see all of the solar and wind connecting. And so how does that change our cybersecurity risk going into the future? And so if we can start to do that assessment now and see where the grid is heading as we see this energy transition um, underway with all these investments being made, let's do an assessment of what the cyber risk looks like so that we can start to address it through, again, the policies, the tools and technologies, and then the partnerships with industry and manufacturers and others. So that assessment is underway right now. And the expectation is later this fall, we'll have a report out that will help identify what what does that cyber risk look like so that we can then use that to help inform our work going forward as an organization. And again, that was Piyush Kumar, Director of DOE's Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response, or CSER. I also spoke with Piyush's colleague, Energy CIO Ann Duncan, about the new national cyber strategy. My team and CSER were involved in the process because it's both federal systems as well as critical infrastructure. In fact, the the strategy heavily leans towards critical infrastructure, but pretty much everybody agreed it's really important to keep federal systems in there as well, because obviously federal systems are critical to our success as a nation. And so we wanted to make sure that stayed in there. So it was incredibly collaborative. Departments and agencies have been involved all along. You know, we really feel like it was a process in which departments and agencies were heard, I often talk about the fact that we get so much better results when we get lots of voices in the room and, you know, we get lots of positions and diversity. And and this is an example, I think, where we got great results from getting lots of people in the room. So that said, you know, we are in DOE. We're deeply committed to improving cybersecurity and resilience to the department's networks and assets. We've got 17 national labs. Power Marketing Administration is part of my responsibility area, which is where Pusha and I work closest together because Power Marketing Administration is our critical infrastructure in the electrical arena. They sell the power that is generated by our Western dams and some other assets and run the grid in 35 states. So we have a deep concern about keeping those operating, keeping that resilient and making sure that we provide power and that we don't have outages. We have been in the process of updating our DOE cybersecurity strategy. We're very close to being done and we've been holding to make sure that we were behind the national cyber strategy in case anything changed, but also we just really didn't want to get out ahead of it. We're going to be releasing our cybersecurity strategy in the near future, which will align with that national strategy. And I think, you know, one of the most important points for us is that we will employ a collective defense. If you've listened to Chris Inglis, he talked about collective defense all the time, and that is our approach to cybersecurity. And that's collaboration across the federal government with the private sector and with our like-minded partners and allies around the world. So we want to work together. 
It, one thing I wanted to ask about stemming from the strategy too is within that pillar one, it, it talks about the sector risk management agencies. I'm just wondering at, as DOE, one of those sector risk management agencies, any more information at this point on terms of opportunities that are out there for investing at an agency like yours? What, what kind of investments might need to be made stemming from these broad goals? So I think, you know, from our standpoint with the power market administrations, we've been very focused on a couple things, right? So, so OT has not gotten enough attention in the past. And so we are very focused on OT security with the power marketing administrations and on ensuring that we have the right abilities to understand what's going on in their networks traffic wise. We're also working with them to pilot OT control systems in the cloud. Currently, from a regulatory standpoint, that we can't do that, but we're, you know, we're trying to do a proof of concept and be able to then work with the regulators to move that forward. We're really, like I said, trying to work with them to ensure they have all the tools that they need to understand their environment. And then on top of that, what we always do, which is sharing information with them and gathering information from them to understand the threats that are out there and the threats they're experiencing. And then we work to share that amongst all four of them. Ann Duncan, CIO at the Energy Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. You also heard from Piyush Kumar, Director of the Office of Cybersecurity, Energy, Security, and Emergency Response. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.